This is Talking Points, Kent's politics podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Points, Kent's politics podcast. With less than 48 hours before we go to the polls, the election campaign is coming to a close. To wrap up our thoughts on what's been going on and what might happen, I'm joined by my co-host, political editor Paul Francis. How are you, Paul? I'm good. I'm looking forward to the, the, to the finishing line. <laughs> the pre-Christmas finishing line. Yeah, it must be a pretty intense period for you specifically, Paul, covering this stuff from day to day. Yeah, and I think even when things aren't happening, other things are happening elsewhere that you've got to keep your eye on. And uh, it's been five and a half weeks of fairly uh, busy journalism for me and for all political reporters. But, you know, that's what campaigns are about, following the twists and turns right up to polling day. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the day itself. So, of course, if you want to follow everything that's happening in the evening and, and you want to get a more of a local flavour for it, you'll be able to watch our live broadcast from KMTV will be going from 10pm all the way through the night, so you'll be able to get those those live results as they come through. We're going to have a lot of special guests. People are going to see a lot of your beautiful face as well, Paul. Yeah, it's can... twice as long as the Irishman. This. Uh... Wow, I, that doesn't, to me, sound like a good way of selling well, it. Well, but... you know, <laughs> if I'm there, you've got to be there as well. <laughs> I will be around as well, providing uh, comments on the social media that have been happening throughout the night as well. So you'll get to see me as well, unfortunately for you. Um, so, Paul, there's loads of stuff's happened since we last did a podcast. It's been pretty busy and to the point where we almost didn't get any podcasts done. Um, we had the hustings in Canterbury on um, Wednesday, which seems like it's a pretty good place to start because it's, once again, Kent's most marginal seat. So we are focusing on it quite a lot uh, you you actually hosted the hustings yourself so you were right in the thick of it yeah and it um, was an unruly crowd sometimes it was wasn't it yeah i mean talk us through your general impressions of the evening well you know people always complain don't they that they don't see enough politicians so this was except at election time so this was kind of a key opportunity for people in canterbury uh, <clears throat> to quiz the three main candidates and uh, i can't there must have been two 200 odd, odd people there i guess I think the uh, organisers said that there was around 370. 370, wow, more than um, I thought. Which is a, a sizeable crowd for a Hustings, isn't it? And, you know, they were, uh, on the whole, a good crowd, uh, asked interesting questions, and we have to mention the fact that the Hustings was organised by BMIX, mm. uh, this uh, group that helps disadvantaged uh, groups of uh, adults and uh, others. And, uh, you know, full credit to them, because it was out to try and give a voice to what it calls the underrepresented in election times. And uh, it was a it was a well attended uh, hustings meetings. Uh, mm. uh, there was obviously probably I say obviously, probably there, there seemed to be more of a kind of a crowd bit in there backing Rosie Duffield and the conservative candidate Anna Firth yeah. got a little bit of a. Uh, uh, barracking from now and again which uh, came close to uh, me having to intervene with a red card but uh, managed to avoid it yeah there was a few of those moments wasn't there I think it definitely felt as if I mean I was so I was there covering it for, for KMTV for a TV package and it, it seemed as if the, the Rosie Duffield crowd was was pretty much in full force I mean, not to say that there weren't people there for the other candidates but it did very it did very much feel as if, if Rosie was getting the majority of the claps um, yes. and and Anna Firth, the um, Conservative candidate, was getting the majority of the booze. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah I would agree. And, uh, you know, nevertheless, you know, despite that, uh, you know, I think it was actually quite a good debate and touched on some very important issues which do tend to get overlooked at election time. Mm, absolutely, especially um, the, the treatment of people with... Um, 
with learning difficulties, which, as you said, BMIX was involved. And I, I got the pleasure of speaking to Tom Seaton, who was one of the volunteers who gets involved with BMIX, and he was there on the night. And it's really good to see an opportunity for these questions these important questions to be to be spoken about and 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 addressed by these politicians who let's be honest in in the recent months and years have only primarily ended up talking about brexit yeah. um rather than anything else so it was a good opportunity for that uh, what, what were your thoughts on um liberal democrats candidate claire malcolmson well uh we haven't seen or heard much of her and you know perhaps for understandable reasons because she's sort of parachuted in at the 11th hour by the Lib Dems uh, after their initial candidate, Tim Walker, the journalist, withdrew. Uh, that was actually the first time I'd met her in person. Uh, she, I don't think, was quite on top of the issues in the same way the other two candidates were. Uh, but, you know, that's the result, perhaps, of coming in late to the contest and not actually being sort of Kent-rooted in the same way that Rosie Duffield and Anna Firth are. Yeah, having an understanding of the area that you're standing in presumably goes quite a long way with voters. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, voters always say, well, we want someone who lives in the area and knows the area because they'll be in touch with the kind of core issues that we're worried about. And, you know, when you get someone from outside being sort of parachuted in, they don't have that same kind of local knowledge. That's not their fault, of course, but, you know, it's, it does sometimes count against them. Talking Points, Ken's Politics Podcast. Moving on a couple of days then from Wednesday, we come to Friday. We had the debate in Maidstone between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, and, and you were in the spin room, Paul. Uh, tell us about that. I was. I was with the uh, political elite, political reporting elite, as oh. it were. Oh. Uh, and uh, it was uh, hard not to be kind of intimidated. You know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, you, you and I were talking about this earlier, about the fact that perhaps the, the leaders' debates had run their course in this campaign and there have been one too many. I kind of felt it was a bit like, you know, uh, an end of term party feeling where everyone's getting really excited about the last big party term and actually when it happens, it's a bit of a damp squib. And I think the reason that the debate on Friday, which was filmed in the Maidstone Studios, was a damp squib was because neither of the two candidates said anything new or different to what they'd said before. Mm, it felt very much as if we were going over the points that have been hammered home by both parties uh, since the election was announced. Yeah. Um, I mean, Corbyn obviously needed to score a kind of fairly decisive victory uh, in terms of, you know, who won. I know it's a kind of a bit of an odd way to talk about the, the, the debate, but the general view was that uh, it had been pretty much a kind of score draw with neither, neither of the two candidates winning convincingly. This whole uh, TV debate thing, we have spoken about the format a couple of times on this podcast, and you know, it's not as if this podcast has even been going for that long, so it shows that it's a big part of an election campaign these days. It doesn't feel like that long ago that we were talking about TV debates in this country being like a really great way of, of re-establishing democracy for people, an exciting way for people to get to see what candidates are about. And already, less than 10 years later, we're already talking about the, the, the idea that it's quite performative, that it maybe doesn't really do anything, and it's just a bit of a show. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of the, the debates. I think they're a great idea, but I think the format does need uh, addressing. I think part of the problem when you've got two candidates uh, debating, there's a tendency for the kind of presentation to, to be first on one candidate saying something, then on a second candidate saying something, and no real genuine interaction between the two. And I think we saw that not only with Friday's debates, but the ITV debates earlier on in the campaign, where they tried to cram in everything, every subject under the sun, and gave the candidates sort of not enough time, really, in my view, to kind of develop their arguments. 
Yeah, and 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 then you, I think the frustration as well when if if the politicians in question are kind of parroting out the same ideas, is that viewers that then tune in don't really feel as if they're they're getting a feel for the person. They feel as if they're getting a a, a sort of a robot. Yeah, a robot, a yeah. mouthpiece for a for a manifesto, which it's supposed to be the opposite of what a TV debate does. I think yeah. you're supposed to go in, you, you go out thinking, I feel like I know that person. If that person runs the country, I feel as if maybe I trust them more, I understand them a bit better. And I, I personally, I didn't really feel as if we got that, certainly from Friday's debate. No, we, I, I don't think we learned anything new. I mean, at least Jeremy Corbyn didn't ask the tricky question about when the Queen's speech was broadcast on Christmas That's embarrassing. That was an embarrassing uh, development recently, wasn't it? it? It's kind of weird in a way. Those kind of little sort of events or little moments can contribute to the feeling that, you know, a a particular candidate is not quite across uh, things like that, which are important to some people. You know, he could have just said, uh, I don't really watch the Queen's speech because I've got other things going on with my family on Christmas Day. But he's had he's got this habit, Jeremy Corbyn, of kind of uh, contriving a long narrative to get himself out of a hole, and it doesn't always come off. No, it, more than more than not, ends up looking as if uh, well, it ends up looking like an, a badly planned excuse, doesn't yeah, it? Which exactly, is yeah. not a good look for voters. Yeah. I mean, on the flip side, Boris Johnson's been kind of ended up being in hot water. I mean, we're going to see this anyway, aren't we? Any election cycle, you start to see the, the punches coming thick and fast because people want to make their political points and try and knock down the other candidate. But we obviously had the, the whole debacle with the photo of the child in the, in yeah. the hospital and Boris Johnson taking the ITV journalist's phone and putting it in his pocket. Yeah, well, one of it. the most weirdest uh, interviews that I've seen with Boris Johnson, I was, just trying to, I was trying to get in my mind what was going through Boris Johnson's head when he took the mobile phone... <laughs> Off the reporter and put it in his pocket. It's amazing, isn't it? And, and then, actually, to be fair, I was thinking, well, why didn't the reporter just stop him and say, can I have my phone back, please? Yeah, I don't think I... I think I would have played it the same way that the reporter did, but it was absolutely... Just hilarious, the idea that, uh, to get out of this, despite this is being filmed, I'm just going to take this phone. Yeah. I'm going to confiscate it as the Prime Minister of this country and you're not going to see it again. Yeah, I, it was a kind of a sense of kind of uh, indicating that he was he was the powerful of the two in the equation and the reporter could have his phone back when Boris Johnson had finished talking about the NHS. But, you know, uh, again, a, although there's little time to go before polling day, that kind of incident, that kind of whatever, you, whether, whether you think it's kind of real or fake news or being manipulated or being used for political purposes, there's always something around the corner which is unexpected in an election and that probably was was the moment mm. like you say anything can happen even even between this podcast going out and us going to the polls something could happen yes for one or two or three of the candidates that, I mean, that changes I, people's perceptions i don't think it's a kind of you know a, a devastating uh, salvo against boris johnson you, you know he has had a few sticky moments but i you know i think this event with this kind of photograph of this uh, this boy on the floor in the hospital um, will kind of underline for supporters of Jeremy Corbyn and Labour that, you know, the Conservatives might sort of betray the NHS if they get to power. So I think it's probably stored up, stored up support for Labour, but not really had any damaging impact on the Conservatives. Mm, mm. And uh, you called the TV debates a uh 
bit of a damp squib. Speaking of damp squibs, um, prior to the TV debate, we were supposed to have a visit from Boris Johnson yes. to Rochester, of all places, to the Johnny Knight pub. Yeah. Um, that, that we, I think a, a number of people ended up going down there, didn't they? Did we get reports of around a 1,000 people? Well, there were reports that it was several hundred people. And, oh, quite uh, a lot less. Quite a lot less. I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I think you might have heard a 1,000 reporters from... Yeah. Supporters, yeah, yeah, but uh, nevertheless, um, what happened here was that uh, some people got wind of Boris's visit, uh, and the plan for him to do a bit of a meet and greet at this pub. And uh, funnily enough, it was leaked, uh, and lots of lots of supporters of other parties turned up. I wasn't there myself, so I didn't uh, didn't see this. Uh, and so many turned up that it made it impossible for the uh, sort of event to go ahead. So it was cancelled. Uh, so the, the the one leader who did turn up in Kent didn't actually meet many members of the, of the public, no. which was probably what uh, it was uh, orientated around. Yeah, and there, there was a, some kind of photo op, wasn't there, and a, with uh, with our Gillingham Rainham MP Brim and Chisty and a yes. couple of other figures. I think Nathan Ward, Reverend Nathan Ward from St Mark's this, Church. This as well. was a kind of closed part of the uh, the the, uh, the day long events, which we didn't do. Get to hear about or attend, so you know. Mm, mm. I don't know what purpose it served, but you know, uh, I suppose the question is: Would Boris Johnson have come here had the filming of the leaders' debate not been happening in the same area uh, on the same day? Um, and I, I kind of think that maybe he wouldn't have done because they switched the filming from Southampton to Maidstone. Uh, I'm not quite sure why, and I suspect if it had been in Southampton, he would have done this kind of event down in Southampton rather than Maidstone. Mm. Which is interesting, isn't it? Kind of ignoring a a whole county there that's, that's yeah. pretty close to London. Is it because the Conservative Party is fairly what some people might consider safe in Kent, and they've had yeah. very strong strong votes historically yeah, for a long time? Yeah, I mean, time. they they've hold, held the whip hand in Kent. Uh, Post Gordon Brown's uh, tenure at number ten, uh, and all but Canterbury have been you know, reasonably safe Conservative-held seats. And everything that I've seen and heard around this campaign indicates to me that they'll probably hang on to all those seats come Thursday. I mean, there, there's always some surprise somewhere, and I think we had that back in 2017 with Canterbury. Will there be another Canterbury-type uh, result in Kent? I very much doubt it. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that, that's a that's a bit of a damp squib itself as a segue into my next question, because obviously we talk about Canterbury, we've spoken about Canterbury a lot, and, and it ends up being a big topic of conversation, because as you say, it's the most marginal seat, it's therefore one of the most interesting. But we do have other seats which could, maybe maybe a slim chance, but could come off as being fairly interesting. We have, I think Dover's probably the one to, the one to talk about, which is... Um, see, we've spoke about on the show before. Charlie Elphick stood yeah. down. His wife Natalie Elphick is now going to be standing. It was, a, it was a clever ruse to get the name Elphick on the ballot paper. Very, very clever. Um, Keeping it in the family. So, I mean, is 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 Natalie going to take that seat? I mean, yeah, I I mean, it was ostensibly one of Labour's key 100 target seats, and it needs a swing of around about 6% to go towards um, Labour for them to, to take it. Uh, you know, I, again, from what I've been hearing from down there, it's not quite going to happen for Labour uh, in Dover. Remembering that it was actually a seat which the party did hold under Tony Blair for three successive elections. So, you know, we shouldn't forget that this kind of sweet seat does swing between the two main parties. 
it's fairly easy to forget that, isn't it, when it's so many election cycles ago. Yeah. Uh, it feels as if it's I mean, always I was joking been... with you. you, you you probably weren't born when Tony Blair was in power. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> I was born in 92, for for what listeners need to know. Um so that's Dover. I think I mean, Medway, well, me and yourself, we did an election video on we online last yes. week, didn't we? We talked a little bit about what's going on in Medway. You've got three constituencies, Rochester and Strood, Gillingham and Raynham, and then Chatham and Aylesford. And they're all held by Conservative MPs who have fairly good support. Also some, some fairly good local support for the for the Labour candidates that want to get in on the action too, right? Yeah. Uh... Again, you know, like Dover, these are seats which I expect the Conservatives will retain. I think, you know, it, Labour is probably reconciled to the fact that uh, it wants to, to get its vote out and narrow the gap between it and the Conservatives. Uh, you know, I just don't see any of those three seats. They've all got ma- uh, majorities of around nine or 10,000, and I think that's just too much of a stretch for Labour to uh, to bridge that gap. That's a big, yeah, they're big majorities, sizable yeah. majorities for the constituents. But, you know, I th- and I think Labour starts from a, a position in Medway where it uh, had hoped that it would do really well in the local council elections in May and that would give it uh, some momentum towards the general election, albeit a general election they didn't expect to happen in December. But that didn't happen in Medway council elections. The Conservatives held on to power quite comfortably. And so Labour is actually, you know, starting from a position where it probably felt it ought to be having a stronger platform on which to challenge these three seats. But mm. we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, Vince Maple is a canny stalwart of Labour politics. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, who knows? Will we be getting uh, Vince appearing on the uh, KMTV Well, what a nice, special? what a nice lead-in to a plug for our TV Another show. Plug, Another plug, I know. Plug, yeah. Vince is on there. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've got a fairly even spread of guests coming into the studio Uh between the uh, wee small hours of uh, midnight and six o'clock, um, and Vince is is amongst them. We'll also be hearing from from Alan Jarrett, the Medway council leader, the Conservative council leader. So yeah, it's going to be an interesting night. Mm, and, and remember, listeners, you can either watch the Irishman twice, or you can watch us uh, recapping yeah. what's going on. So you know, I know which one I'll be watching. Yeah, no, well, you because you'll be there. Well, so I'll you'll be have there. no choice. If you're sitting there watching the Irishman, then uh, yeah. don't know how well that'll go. Um, well, what I do need though is to appeal to people with their kind of uh, ways in keeping my voice intact for se- for ten hours. Yeah, you've so got if a, anyone's out there got any uh, tips about that? Any uh, vocal coaches? If you could get in touch, that would yes. be uh, much appreciated. Lemon might- and ginger tea, I reckon, might be, <laughs> might be the one. We'll make sure you keep topped up, pal. Oh, Paul. So, um, right, the thing we always end on, um, your jargon word. I've got to say, Paul, I think since we've done this, you've done one single word, jargon word of the week. It's always, it's getting longer yeah, and longer. Know, now, yeah. this week is, uh, get ready for it, drum roll, um, repurposing an existing tranche of hypothecated funding. What does that mean and why did James well, Joyce write it? <laughs> it wasn't James Joyce, it was the Shadow uh, Labour Transport uh, Secretary, was Andrew it? MacDonald. Well done, who, Andrew. What are came, you talking about? He came up with this gem. Basically, this relates to uh, Labour's plans to uh, cut rail fares by uh, a third. And the obvious question is, well, if you're cutting rail fares by a third, you're going to need to take away money from other areas in order to subsidise that cut in rail fares. And so the explanation proffered by uh, Andrew McDonald was uh, this uh, repurposing an existing tranche of hypothecated funding. Now, in, uh, in sort of plain English, what this means is that Labour would take some money under a different budget heading and put it under 
the budget heading for subsidising cheaper rail fares. Look how easy that was to say in a way that makes sense as well. Well, I am. That's my job. Look at that. To make sense of these things. But did he say this? Did he say this or did he write this? No, he actually said this. Wow. And it was when he was being interviewed on the Today programme on Radio 4. And uh, I kind of thought, hold on a minute. That, that, not only is that does that sound ridiculous, but we've got our jargon phrase of the week sorted out immediately. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, and then like you say, jargon phrase of the week now is probably more, week, yes. more more correct. Uh, do you reckon he stood in front of the mirror and practiced that one? Because that's a that's a word. I don't know. Half, uh, it, it is. Uh, you know, I think what what it is is they get into the intimidating environment of a you know newsroom and being quizzed on aspects of their kind of policies. And uh, this is the kind of stuff which panics them a bit. So they, they come out with this jargon to make it sound as if it's all bona fide and uh, all the sums add up. Just completely confusing to everybody. Absolutely. Um, well, thanks for listening to this podcast. Obviously, the last one before we go to the polls. Um, we will be back on, I think, probably Monday after the after the results to, to kind of have ruminate on what's happened and uh, get Pro- reactions. Provided I'm not still asleep, that is. Yes, providing... Reco- recovering. Providing you can still speak as well, I guess. Um, <laughs> it could be a silent podcast. Oh, that could be fun. We could do that spoof that the Conservatives have done of uh, Love Actually. Have you seen that? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd rather not. I could hold up. It wouldn't work, though, would it? Because people wouldn't be able to see what I was holding up. I mean... Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it could yeah. be genius. It could be genius. Like more like a Philip Glass it installation could, yes. or anything. Um, a piece of conceptual <laughs> interactive art, maybe. Oh, wow. I think it's best to end it there. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Talking Points, Ken's Politics Podcast. 